I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're joined by Neil Howe, the man who coined the term millennial. And, alongside his late colleague William Strauss, came up with a generational theory of history that's come to be known as the Fourth Turning Theory. His work has, in one way or another, been promoted by a variety of voices, often from opposing political perspectives, including, on one end, Al Gore, and on the other, Steve Bannon, whose documentary, Generation Zero, was heavily influenced by the fourth turning theory. Said theory posits a cyclical understanding of history rather than a linear one. Howe is now further extrapolating on this theory in his new book, The Fourth Turning is Here. And that's what we'll be talking about for much of this conversation. So without further ado, let's get right to it with Neil Howe, author of The Fourth Turning is Here. What the seasons of history tell us about how and when this crisis will end. Welcome to Parallax Views Guest, and I'm very excited to be speaking with. He's the Director of Demography at HedgeEye, uh, also the coiner of the term millennial, and the author with Bill Strauss of the very influential book, The Fourth Turning, Neil Howe, uh, he is also the author of a new book, a follow-up to The Fourth Turning. The Fourth Turning is here. What the seasons of history tell us about how and when this crisis will end. How are you doing, Neil? I'm very good, Dad JG. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm very excited to be speaking with you because I think in the past few years, there's been a renewed interest uh, in The Fourth Turning. And I think there's been a lot of sensational headlines. Uh, I know you wrote about this in The Washington Post. Uh, due to the fact that uh, Steve Bannon was a fan of the book and even made that movie Generation Zero about it. But what's really interesting is if you actually read The Fourth Turning, uh, this is also a book that appealed to a lot of progressives, people like Tom Hartman, and it's not really meant as a political manifesto. So for people that only know about The Fourth Turning because they heard, oh, Steve Bannon was in it, uh, what is the real Fourth Turning? When you get past the sensational headlines, what is the thesis that you and Bill came up with uh, when the book initially came out in 1997? Well, it was a uh, an extension, and I will say that uh, you know Bill Strauss, who who passed away in in 2007, sort of on the on the cusp of the cri- of the crisis era that we predicted, you might say, 
Um, uh, I worked for many years with him. I mean, the two of us wrote books together. Uh, and our first book, and, and they built on each other. In other words, our, our thinking was part of a sort of an integrated approach to looking at history generationally. That is looking at it not just as a whole bunch of people just doing things every year. That's the way most people look at it. You know, you had 70-year-olds doing things every year and 20-year-olds and 50-year-olds, right? But what fascinated us was the connection between how 10 and 20-year-olds are shaped by history and how later on as 60 and 70-year-olds, they shape history, right, as leaders and parents. And this dynamic of generational interaction with history, with a time lag, right, when you think of it that way, is what fascinated us because it, it seemed to us that it, it explained some of the patterns we see in history, right? Why we see uh, these great periods of uh, civic upheaval in our history roughly a lifetime apart. You know, you go from the the American Revolution to the Civil War to the Great Depression, World War II, and here we are today, right? And why we have these great awakenings roughly halfway in between. What explains that is, is a sequence of generations. And that was actually uh, a certain pattern in generations. And that was actually the subject of our first book called Generations, A History of America's Future, which was a collective biography of all of American generations since, you know, the 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 Puritan generation came to uh, New England in the, the Great Migration in the in the 1630s. Um, and by the way, that's that's the book in which we coined the term millennial generation. That came out in uh, 1991. Um, and no one had ever done that before. No one had ever looked at history as a sequence of generations. Historians talk about generations all the time. And they're always talking about, well, it's generational change that caused this or that, right? That, that caused the culture to change in the 60s or caused uh, uh, intellectuals to change their opinion in the 1930s, right? They're constantly alluding to generations, but no one had actually studied generate. No one had actually thought about how it all works. That's what we did. And in the uh, our book, Generations, which was mainly about uh, archetypes of generations, why they come in a certain sequence, and mainly about generations and the patterns in history simply applied. Fourth Turning, which came out in 1997, as you know, uh, JG turned that around. Our main focus was patterns of history and generations with a driver, right? And uh, you're right, that, that, that book has had an amazing, um, uh, how should I say, uh, a lifetime. Uh, it's um, it's uh, sold progressively better as years have gone by. Let me let me put it that way. Uh, and it's one of those rare books. I mean, it's uh, I don't know how many years has gone by. Twenty six years now since since then, and it's and it's sold better. And people see more and more in it as time goes by. And my purpose of writing this new book was well, let's face it, a lot of time has gone by. And the the fourth turning era, which was the is the crisis era, the winter right, the crisis history, moment. Yeah, we're, we're now in it, and now I can we can tell so much more about how it's happening and what generational forces are driving it. And of course, this is uh, probably I don't know. It's maybe even slightly longer than the first book. I don't, you just read it. Maybe you can tell me, uh, but it, but it's it's. It's, it's, there's a lot of detail on what's happening today and a lot more um, uh, detail on for turnings as opposed to simply, um, you know, how the general pattern, in other words, how do for turnings turn out uh, uh, historically and a lot more detail on how these have happened throughout sort of the Anglo-American saculum, which goes back to the 1400s. So if you can... You know, there's so there, you give the turnings names. There's the high, the awakening, the unraveling, and then the crisis. For people that are unfamiliar with this, what what's your basic crash course on how these turnings work? Well, a, a uh, the overall cycle lasts a long human lifetime. So you know, you're talking about eighty or ninety years in 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 the last few centuries of American history, um, and. And each turning is comprised of about you know twenty or twenty five year periods, generation long periods. 
So each saculum, we call that the, the long human life cycle, is made up of four, four periods, right? And 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 there is a there's a seasonality to them. So the first turning would be a period like the American High uh, after World War II. This would have been the, the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John Kennedy. Uh, it's a it's always comes after a crisis. Always comes after the crisis is resolved. It's always a period in which institutions are powerful and individualism is weak. It's a period when people feel a tremendous amount of optimism about that collective sense of direction, but they don't feel all that secure or good about who they are as individuals. These are areas where we feel that we're uh, our country is more than the sum of its parts. You know, together we can do anything, but as individuals, we aren't much. <laughs> we're rather modest about who we are as individuals. Now, the the next turning is an awakening. That's the second turning. That is, if you want the from the spring season, we move into the summer season, okay? That's the, the summer solstice. And that's when people suddenly tire of all the, um, the social conformity, the, the, the social discipline. They want to refine authenticity. They want to reconnect with what they really want, right? And these are the periods of great individuation uh, when we rebel against all the, 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 the strictures and the institutional constraints and we all recall the period of the sort of the consciousness revolution from the mid 1960s to the early 1980s. And it started really um, on, uh, on college campuses and inner cities. And, and a lot of it you saw first what we today call the left, you know, with, with reactions against patriarchy and, and sexual gender roles. And we, no one wanted all this, the social and cultural authority and, and, and mainly on the culture, but it ended up uh, with a rebellion against uh, any kind of strictures, authority in the economy. You remember, it ended up with Ronald Reagan, it ended up with tax cuts, it ended up with deregulation. In all areas of American life, no one wanted any restraints on what they could do, right? And at the end of that period, uh, we moved into, uh, which was successful, uh, we moved into the fall season. This is the unraveling. And that would have been from the late 1980s until the GFC, the global financial crisis in 2008. And that is a period, it's the opposite of the high, right? That's a period when individuals are strong and institutions are weak, discredited. Uh, great, great decades of uh, unraveling decades in American history would be the, the 1990s, you know, the roaring 90s, or the Roaring Twenties, or the 1850s, or the 1760s. These are all decades of cynicism and bad manners when the country feels very lightly governed. You know, almost like no one's really in charge, right? And we're all, and, and very interestingly, our latest unraveling sort of the, the, the leitmotif theme, which really pinnacled right around the year 2000 was Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. Right, right. And that's a book I've come back to a lot. What? I said, that's a book I've come back to a lot. You know, it seems like it really defined an era. Yeah. Well, it really did. And the, the idea was that, that governments and regulations were going to wither away and the whole world would just be a lot of market transacting individuals. <laughs> and we would have a billion choices and we would all be happy in our billion choices. It was a benign view, <laughs> an absurd, I think from today's perspective, an absurdly benign view, you know, about how delightful all that would be. Um, and that, that, that then it was 2008. In 2008, we've been moving into the fourth turning. And you can see all of the, 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 the changes in direction, delta of social change from 2008 on. Uh, you know, like 1929, it was a global financial crash. It was a balance sheet risk, you know, depression in a way, which affected the, the world. But from 2008 on, we've seen globalism, going from more globalism to less globalism. You know, global trade is a share of global product and declining since 2008. We've seen uh, a rise in, in populism and authoritarianism around the world. The democracies are declining around the world ever since 2008. I was um, going to say, not to interrupt you, but one of the yeah. most interesting aspects of your book is when you talk about how, you know, my generation, the younger generation, the millennials, and even probably now Gen Z, <laughs> 
very much are like skeptical of democracy. They're almost like, let's get it over with. You know, why do we even have this democracy? Whereas older people, when they're polled, are like, you know, we need to live in a democracy. Well, exactly. And and the whole idea of it, and I I discuss that a lot in the book, right? I mean, the the idea that um, older people, boomers, for instance, you know, love democracy because you can talk about anything, but nothing really changes, right? Because you can always, uh, there's always a veto. There's always a a lawsuit or someone else that can intervene. Nothing really changes. And I think this is why younger people are are down on democracy. And it's not just in America, but around the world. We we see that there's a uh, Cambridge Center for the Study of Democracy in in England, and they do uh, opinion polls around the world. And they show that among the younger generation today, democracy is in uh, faith in democracy in steep decline, not just relative to older people, but relative to older people at the same age, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. In other words, this is a generational change. And and we saw something like this in the 30s. Uh, and again, I, I, I draw parallels all the time here in other areas where we've seen the same thing. We're seeing a concerted move toward toward order, toward security, toward uh, this is why populism and and authoritarianism are so popular today in Latin America, Southern Europe. Uh, You look at India, Burma, you know, Thailand, you look at uh, the Philippines, China, you look around the world today. It's, it's, you know, people think it's Trump. They think it's just us. It's not even primarily us. We're, We're not even the dominant player here. And to some extent, we see global generations at work. And there's another thing I bring up that that although I talk about the um, Anglo-American seculum as being the best defined um, uh, uh, of these of these turning patterns that we've seen, increasingly these generational patterns are becoming globally synchronized. Uh, World War II and the Great Depression were worldwide events. I mean that. You know, Asia, East Asia was hugely involved with that. All of Europe and the entire Anglophone world, right, was enormously involved in that catastrophe, which was probably on a human casualty basis, the greatest catastrophe the world had ever seen. Um, And then the the awakening of the late 60s and 70s, this was seen everywhere from Buenos Aires to, to, um, to Milan and Rome to Paris to you know, the batter Meinhof gang in Germany. This was this was not just an American phenomenon. Uh, in fact, it was much more violent in area. I mean, we talk about our weathermen and our Symbionese army and <laughs> all this stuff. And, and it did get kind of violent and, and pretty crazy, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s. But not nearly as violent as some of these other places, not nearly as crazy. So these are global, becoming global trends. And it's something to think about that these generational trends, this is not just America. Maybe that's just some something to leave you with there. Uh, we obviously, as you know, we explore that in the book a little bit. One thing I also wanted to talk about, you've, you've sort of gotten into the ideas of these turnings and this sort of um, idea that it's like seasons, right? And the fourth turning is like winter. That's the you know most dangerous period. Uh, dangerous period in a lot of ways for people. Um, but it's also a, a time of just great upheaval in general, right? But, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about how, how should people understand your the way you talk about uh, generational archetypes? What what do we mean when we talk about these archetypes like the, the hero generation or the nomad generation? Um, you know, maybe you could explain that for my audience. Well, think about it this way. If there is a, if there are seasons in history it almost directly implies a seasonality of generational formation, right? So if 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 history shapes generations, generations shape history, then the generation that's shaped in the um in say the spring is going to be the shapers of the following fall and winter, right? So if there's a pattern in history, there should be this similar kind of generation, right, shaping that. So, for example, uh, the the what we call an, an artist archetype. Let's just start with uh, the the type which comes of age in the spring, 
right? So they're they're born they're born and raised as children during the crisis, uh, very protectively, uh, very almost smothered upbringing, and they come of age during the the awake during the high, which is a time of total conformity. Who do you think of today? The silent generation, right? We only have a few of them still in power, by the way. There's Mitch McConnell. There's there's obviously Joe Biden. And uh, Nancy Pelosi until very recently, and there are a few, uh, you know, chairman of committees in the House still. But these are people who remember World War II as children. That's how you identify them. Joe Biden remembers World War II as a child. And, and you have to remember that they came of age at a time when, um, you know, you, you, the, the soft drink ads did not celebrate individuality. You know, we had ads that said something like, you know, say Pepsi, please, <laughs> or be sociable, have the Pepsi. I mean, you have to remember what that was like, right? Um, so they were very constrained. And what we find is this generation began to take more chances, not coming of age, but in midlife, right? During the 60s, they were in midlife, and they were the ones that had all the midlife passages, and they were the ones that really uh, spearheaded the divorce revolution. And there, when they finally really began to dominate leadership, was just during the unraveling, uh, they liked the free and wheeling diversity of America's mood because it was such a tonic to the high, right? You think about it, the high was so conformist, and now they've created this wonderful world of sort of affluence and choice, right? Um, and then you look at other archetypes, one that's really interesting and important is the boomer archetype. You know, this boomer is not an archetype, it's the name of a particular generation, but we call that archetype the prophet archetype. They are born just after the crisis. So they were the children of the high, they were the Dennis the Menaces, right? Running around in the in the Levittown suburbs during the during the high. And they came of age during the awakening. And in fact, they were a critical cutting a cutting edge exponent of the awakening. And in many ways, they dragged other generations with them. You know, the old the old Bob Dylan line, right? Um, Come mothers and fathers throughout the land, your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. <laughs> that was it. I mean, these were the kids who were following the, the this new creed of looking within yourself and finding this new sense of certainty about values. It scared their parents. It frightened their parents. Um, this generation of, of visions and values, of firm believers of individualism and firm believers in right and wrong, very values obsessed. Uh, they came of age shaping the counterculture, you know, all these great new cultures that they've shaped. Uh, and they came of age excoriating the values of their parents. And then when they were, you know, moved into midlife, they excoriated each other, <laughs> you know, red zone, blue zone, you know, by the 1990s. And and today they're they're trying to become paragons of you know for for younger generations to follow them. Um, uh, so th this is like the prophet generation. That's sort this of what is the boomers the prophet are. Prophet archetype, yes. Yeah. And they always this archetype is always born and raised right after a crisis. And they always, as elders, lead America into the next great crisis. Remember that. You know, FDR and 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 Stimson and Marshall and and all of those guys that we recall, leaders of World War II, were born in the 20 years after the Civil War, right? That was their high, right? They came of age during the, the, the what's called the Third Great Awakening, and they led America, the, the so-called wise old men and women of World War II, right? So that was that group. Who led America into the Civil War? The generation that was raised as kids right after the nation's founding. And, and uh, this was Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. And, uh, and, and it, it, uh, it, it, it included um, William Lloyd Garrison. I mean, it included these radical abolitionists who, you know, you know Jefferson's generation thought they'd done the, the history, its greatest favor ever by designing the American Constitution. What did Garrison call the Constitution? A covenant with hell, an agreement with death. I mean, that was that that was that youthful rage, right? Against their civic parents, just as boomers had it against their civic parents. What we like to do is point out these 
And what's amazing is these generations always lead the country into the next crisis. Same thing with the generation raised right after the um, the glorious revolution and the period of, of, of rebellion and radicalism in the late 17th century, raised after that, they took America into the American Revolution. Does that give you some sense of how archetypes work? Um, that's how an archetype, it, it's obviously history is always different, right? The details are different, the events are different, the, the technology is different, all of that is different. But the basic themes that they encounter and the basic challenges of their life cycle has a remarkable parallel to the same archetype in another secular. Right, right. So that sort of leads me into, I, I want to talk about, you know, in this fourth turning, this crisis point, you know, that you're saying in this book, the fourth turning is already here, right? We're sort of in the midst of it right now. We're living through it. What sort of follows in the years to come? What what can we learn from history and, and the idea of history as a cycle uh, to prepare for the current crisis that we're in? Well, you know, uh, we're we're already in it, so events could move pretty fast. Uh, I think we we probably have a decade or so to go. Uh, we think, uh, you know, I think this this fourth turning is going to be over in the in the early twenty thirties. So you think about it, we have maybe a decade to go, and and typically the climactic events, the dramatic events, uh, occur toward the end, right? They're still ahead, right? Um, so whether it's uh, you know, financial and economic duress, or whether it's... I mean, it could even be something like war. Well, that's what I'm saying. Organized conflict is always involved. In fact, it may even be necessary. And and I talk a lot about that. It's, It's worth reminding people that all of America's total wars have been fought in fourth turnings in American history. And in fact, every fourth turning has had a total war. I mean, and now you might ask me, well, is it necessary. And I, I don't know. I, I, I hit, you know, I'm not such a pessimist that I say, yeah, it's absolutely necessary. But I do say that what's required by the end of the fourth turning is a um, a sense of total urgency as though the nation is, its survival is at stake, and it requires a complete public mobilization of effort, which allows you then to tear down and completely rebuild America's institutions. And of course, that's the opportunity for younger generations, right? When you start tearing down and rebuilding, that's suddenly when younger generations make their impact. That's suddenly when you had the uh, the, the authors of the Federalist Papers, right? You, you had Madison and, and, and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, average age, I don't know, age 29 or 30. I mean, you think about it, right? Uh, uh, actually drafting the... the the Federalist Papers and actually designing the archetype for the new government. So suddenly younger people suddenly get to have so much more influence in building these new institutions for the future again. And one thing that happens over the over the seculum, right, is that these institutions designed after a crisis to invest in the future and benefit the young and, you know, everything is it works really well initially, becomes barnacled over time, over the seculum by all the selfish interests, particularly during the awakening, when everyone is turning toward the self, right? We all begin to, to, to uh, design our own little sinecures in the system. So right. the I wanted to get into that, that because I, I feel like, uh, you know, throughout these turnings, you eventually get to this point where there's this massive decline in, exactly. I guess, civic trust, essentially, you know? Yeah, there's no civic trust in the system because everyone knows that the whole system today is not designed for the public. And it's not designed for the future. It's designed to benefit everyone who's feathered their little bed in it, right? When you consider our federal government today, um, JJ, I mean, what is it? It no longer invests in anything in the public interest. It's completely been crowded out by arrangements of people, you know, individuals with their own little contract. And if you look at, uh, it's about, you know, 85% of government spending, once you take away defense, which, by the way, is much less as a share of GDP than it was back in the high, by the way, almost a, only a third of what it was back in the 19, late 1950s. But if you look, if you take away defense, almost all federal spending is either payments to creditors, 
or payments to individual entitlement, you know, entitlees. And they they made their deal. I mean, you try to cut Social Security, you try to reform Medicare, Medicaid, SSI, doesn't matter what it is, any of those benefits. Wait, I had my deal. Nothing was like this is in the national interest. It's wait, I had my deal. I paid into that. What kind of system is that? We call this a public government. And I wrote a book many years ago. It was actually before Generations. Uh, my first book, actually, I, I, I co-authored with Pete Peterson, uh, who, you know, by the way, became, you know, founder of, of uh, he was head of Lehman Brothers, became founder of the Blackstone Group. And we did a whole bunch of books together. But our first book was called um, uh, On Borrowed Time, which is on sort of the entitlements problem that we have in this country. And that, that was back in the mid 80s, so it was a long time ago. But I coined this term I, to describe what kind of government we had. And it was even true back then. It's even more true today. I said, America has what I would call a libertarian welfare state. That's what I called it, libertarian welfare state. We think it's a welfare state because it's massive. It's huge. It takes a huge share of our check. And you just look at your paycheck. Look at FICA. <laughs> look at how much is taken out. Look at how much we have to pay in taxes. But interestingly, it's libertarian because it doesn't go to any public purpose. It just pays off individuals who've got a deal. And it's crazy to me. And, and all these new budget agreements we have, even the most recent one, you know, I'm done with the Freedom Caucus in the House. It was all to continue to squeeze down all the public interest spending. You know, where are we going to spend in infrastructure or anything that, that involves the whole public to preserve all those special deals? That's how bankrupt our politics have become, JJ. And not this, just bankrupt, but also, I, I mean, I like to use the term uh, like ossified or even like fossilized. The institutions seem to have become. How's that? Sclerotic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. So, so any of those words apply, but this is what the Seculum does. And the fourth turning, and so the, I have a, a chapter in there on complex systems. And how complex systems work in nature. Complex systems are everywhere. And these are systems which are so complex, you can't really analyze them. You can't figure out, you know, you can't actually predict exactly what's going to happen. Um, but they evince regularity over long time periods, right? They tend to come back to the same. These are called attractors in, in, the, in the rubric of, you know, chaos theory people. And the Seculum is a complex system. It's kind of a complex traffic pattern in New York City or something. You know, we don't know exactly how it works, but you know, it has these certain patterns that can keep coming back. And what one attribute of complex systems is that they often have these critical periods when suddenly everything gets reshuffled, right? And then they sort of start over again. The the fourth turning is this kind of the the, what would what would make this a kind of punctuated equilibrium? In other words, much of the time, not a lot changes in the system, but it's in the fourth turning when that equilibrium is punctuated. So public history does change, yes, but it doesn't change at the same rate. Suddenly, everything changes really quickly, and it tends to change in fourth turnings. And this is when we, we change the system, and very often it's through things which are catastrophic, and 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 very very often um, uh, painful and, and a dramatic even dramatic and catastrophic even to the people experiencing it and and this is why it's often associated with organized conflict. You know, we talk about wars, but what happens is is that just like many other complex systems, um, forests you know occasionally require fires. Rivers occasionally require floods. I mean, you see so many of these things which occasionally have these things which reorient things the way they were. This is a system of that nature. And um, and I think one of the one of the benefits is is that although it is traumatic to experience, on the other end of it, you get all of the things that today we cannot get, right? So it's, get it sounds like there's two sides. Not to interrupt you, but it sounds like there's two sides to the fourth turning. I think some people, when they read about the fourth turning or they hear about it in passing, 
they're just thinking, oh, this is like the period of total destruction. But you're saying, you know, along with the sort of like, um, you know, uneasy element of of things going away or, you know, things being destroyed, there's also this period of uh, reconstruction or constructing something new. Totally. And this is the positive message. Uh, all of America's great golden ages have come after court turnings. I mean, you know, when you think about it, uh, the, the the wonderful period we had of the nation's founding, the period after after the Civil War. Where well, the we period after World War II, yeah. The period after World War II. Um, there's a, a, a famous page, and I, I analyze it a little bit in the book. It's uh, by William James. Um, who was a pacifist during the Civil War, interestingly enough, unlike uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who chose to serve. The, the two make a very interesting pair to study together. But uh, he, he made a famous speech at Stanford University in 1906. And he said, the, he proposed that we have, perhaps it was possible to have the moral equivalent of war. And he talked a lot about, he talked what was very interesting about this speech is that he talked about war as a social process. And he says, you know, everything that we think of that is, that is beneficial about the state, you know, our dedication to the commonweal, the fact that people give up their private lives and are able to sacrifice themselves for the group, the fact that people are able to um, confront, you know, traumatic uh, 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 challenges and, and overcome them. And all of these things that we admire about our society and, and everything that we admire about modernity and, and who we've become are, are forged in war. And he was very honest about it. And he said, you know, maybe it would be possible to have a substitute for that, but he wasn't sure. But in the in the speech, he said something very interesting. Uh, it gets to something you just brought up, JG, and that was, um, he asked the audience, how many in this audience would have preferred that America had never gone through the Civil War? And remember, there's 1906. A lot of the veterans would still be in the audience. I mean, they'd certainly be the parents of these people. And he immediately says, I'm sure I already know the answer. Almost none of you would say yes, because you couldn't imagine the industrial progress in the sense of unity and what America is having gone through that war, right? And I think many people today, you know, in, in post-war America would say, can you imagine America not having gone through World War II? Well, what would it have been, you know, I don't know, with Hitler and Tojo, and, right? I mean, we all say in retrospect, yeah, that was really good. And not just because we protected the world or averted some outcome, but what it did to us, it brought us together and allowed us to create this. But this was really interesting. He said, almost none of you would, but then he asked another question. He said, and he said, this is paradoxical. He said, if I were to ask you all, would you like an event just like this sometime in your future? He said, almost all of you would say no. <laughs> so he said, isn't that interesting and paradoxical? <clears throat> and, you know, you might even think that's a little bit similar to how we live our personal lives, right? We go through a catastrophe in our personal lives. We grow. We become more mature. We understand life better. You ask yourself whether you, looking back, you know, maybe you went through Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you lost your job, your career, whatever happened. <clears throat> you said, would you have preferred that you had never done that? Most people would say no. But then you ask, well, you want to have that happen again next year? <laughs> I think most of would say no. You know, and I, I wouldn't want that to happen. But this is why um, if, you, if people are honest with themselves and they say, you take the trends that we've been in the last 20, 30 years, Rich get richer, poor get poorer. The nation feels ever less like it's a community. I was uh, going to say, yeah. for me, like one of the most apocalyptic trends in my view is just the the, the wealth gap. I mean, the level of inequality between rich but, and poor is exactly. like. But I, yeah. I'm saying all of these things, the sense of, uh, you know, our, a culture being just vitiated by a million different fragments. No one feels they have anything in common or anything anymore. Loneliness becoming practically an epidemic. We begin to talk about, you know, midlife life, deaths of despair. Do you think you want to see that 30 years in the future? I mean, which is worse, right? Which is a worse future? Not to have an end to that? Well, what does end that? That's what the fourth turning is about. So 
I want to get into where you see the trends going, but one thing I wanted to touch upon that I sort of mentioned at the beginning of the interview, what do you think the biggest misinterpretations people have about your and the late Bill Strauss's work? What do you think the biggest misinterpretations of it are? Oh, gosh, I, it's it's hard for me to like start inventing what mistakes others might make of us. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny, politically, I mean, you mentioned Steve Bannon, but it's interesting. After Generations came out, a lot of people had the opposite impression that we were, you know, closet Democrats. We were. I was going to say Al Gore was a big fan of Generations. Well, Al, I think he Al, gave it to people in Congress. You know? Yeah, Al Gore sent a book to every member of Congress, and um, and and he and uh, Bill Clinton were big promoters. Uh, certainly, were big readers of the book, and it influenced their their you know choice of, of top officials, including probably even including Bill, Bill Clinton's choice of Al Gore. Uh, you know, their reading of our book. And and a lot of people read our our work during the late 1990s and the, and the 2000s as a, um, you know, our picture of the millennial generation as being, you know, special, pro-community, uh, pro-order, and, and being, you know, confident about this new sort of integrated future of America as being very much a democratic platform. I mean, this is like the opposite of, of your kind of your libertarian red zone, you know, manifesto. So we were accused of being, uh, you know, socialists. So it it's I would say that um, reading our book for for anyone who's involved in politics is going to be a Rorschach's test. <laughs> you you will read your own. You know, you will read your own tendencies back at yourself in a way. Um, but I, I do think that an honest reader going through the entire book uh, will probably have to admit that you probably won't know where I stand politically. Isn't isn't that right, J.D.? You've read the book. I mean, I've, uh, I felt that way when reading both this book and the fourth turning, the, the 97 book. I think it's right. a lot more complicated than people make it, uh, make it out to be. I mean, I, like I said, I think... Uh, it's unfair people look at like the Steve Bannon articles in the New York Times and judge the book based on, you know, really, in my view, sensational articles. Um, I was Steve, also Steve, I mean, Steve Bannon is an interesting character. And, you know, he he he's a media guy. People don't realize that he, he only came very late to politics. He came to politics uh, right before, you know, deciding to support Trump. Um, but he um, he was a filmmaker. Uh, that was his main you know, kind of an ex-Goldman Sachs guy who's a filmmaker and spent a lot of his time designing um, uh, trinkets that you buy and sell on these, you know, massive multiplayer games. That's how he actually made a lot of money because he runs these companies to sell you, you know, uh, wands and, and and wizard armor and stuff like that. Uh, so you think of a guy who's really uh, more in the cultural realm. And I, and I do think that a lot of the people most attracted to our work are not totally politically focused, but they're people who are interested in politics, but they also have a broader view about culture and history. Uh, and I think those are the, those are the people who resonate most with 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 what we say. I also wanted to ask. I've seen people criticize uh, the fourth turning and and you're in Strauss's work by saying it's too deterministic. How do you respond to the people that, that try to say this is too deterministic in its uh, sort of theory of history? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> I, I did remind people that we don't predict events. You know, we don't predict what will happen. Um, we predict trends and we predict trends that in our view will will are, are breaking trends, you know, will trends that will actually issue in certain kinds of events, but we don't predict the events themselves. Um, I think in the fourth turning, we 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 did say, for example, right, we could have a tea party <laughs> over you remember this is 1997. We could have a tea party, we had a weapon of mass destruction used in New York, which would spawn a war. We could, you know, go through these things. Um, now a lot of the Example predictions actually turned out to be on the mark. We said that, you know, that Russia would actually invade former republics. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, a lot of stuff that we actually predicted as examples actually happened. Um, but that was not our point at all. And we said, look, 
It's, her point is to say, is to come up with these examples because it's gonna be like that, right? It's not gonna be these things. I would say that that the that the way we look at history is to say that we don't predict which wave will hit on the shore. We predict the tides, right? And and if you if you think of it, you know, my, my goal is to predict the individual wave, you're probably not gonna get very far. But if your approach is to say we can predict the tide coming in or the tide coming out. Now, when the tide's coming in, it's likely that there'll be a wave on the incoming tide that'll take out your lighthouse. You understand what I mean? But but it's not the wave itself. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to predict the tides of history, right? And and um, and I think a lot can be done there. And I think people should approach us in that spirit. Um, so that's that's what I would say about determinism. Um, you know, people can always say, well, you know, how, how would you predict? I mean, people will reduce it to the ludicrous. They say, well, how would you predict, you know, Oswald killing JFK in 1963 or the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941? Is it? It's ridiculous. Of course, these things are unpredictable. What we predict is something like that was going to happen, right, at that roughly that time and and that all the social forces are pushing in that direction. The other the other uh, thing I wanted to mention was the I've also seen the criticism, and I just wanted to give you time to address it. Was uh, that you focus on generations at the expense of issues like class, race, gender? How do you respond to uh, critics that will bring up those points? Well, I I do, Bradley, because people talk a lot more about class, race, and gender than they do about generations. People don't understand generations. Um, and I, I will say this, um, and, and by the way, uh, issues of class, race, and gender in the book, I talk about that as being part right. of the- Right, well, that's what I was gonna say. No, you do talk, talk about those issues, but you're, you're also wanting to focus on generations as well but, as those issues. But in other words, the, the turnings do involve changing notions of class, gender, and, and, and race, right? Uh, but the reason why generations is more important in how we look is that generations are different from other categories in one critical respect. Now, in some ways, they're like class and race, for example. You know, they're, they're huge categories. They admit of a lot of exceptions. They're sort of sketchy at the edges. You know what I mean? And, and, and they don't define an individual, right? I mean, that's just obvious, right? But, but that's true of all of all social categories. Generations have something though that these other categories don't. They're mortal. They're fixed in time. They have a discrete that actually they have an origin point in time. And they have a unique trajectory and they perceive their own aging and they perceive their own death. And there are certain issues that they need to resolve before they pass on. This is why it's possible to write a collective biography of, say, the silent generation or of boomers in a way that you couldn't write a biography of all Californians <laughs> yeah. or, you know, all wealthy women or all, you know, middle class Latinos. You know what I mean? They're yeah, just, and, and it's sort of like your return. I was going to say, you, you sort of uh, take this approach that says, you know, each generation has their role within each turning, right? You know, uh, exactly. the way one one generation uh, or one archetype of a generation uh, deals with the fourth turning is going to be different from another, you know. So generations are defined and shaped by history and they will die in history. You can't say that about these other categories. And that's why they're more they play on a more important causal or motivational force within our system. I mean, in a way, our system is about that because our, our whole system, the way we look at history, is the interaction between life cycles and public time, right? You know, I mentioned uh, before we got on air that uh, I came to your work through Arnold Toynbee. Uh, so I wanted to talk about Toynbee's influence, and maybe also we could talk a little bit about how uh, figures like Toynbee have sort of uh, gone out of favor in academia and your thoughts on that. 
Well, you know, what's great about Toynbee is that he asked big questions. And I mean, he asked, and he asked a lot of questions, which may be unanswerable. I don't know, but at least he was asking big questions. He was asking questions about you know, why do some civilizations rise and fall where the different, you know, uh, characteristics of different civilizations. And he also, as, as part of that discussion, I think it's in book nine of his huge, you know, uh, uh, opus on, on, on history, uh, actually looked at shorter cycles, including the saculum, you know, that we talked about, what he called the, 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 the peace war cycle. But he was asking big questions. And I think the big tragedy today of history is it's seen as a sort of uh, history is this practice today is, is very narrow um, uh, and is seen as a certain kind of species of, if anything, it's just seen as a species of social criticism or cultural criticism. And it's not seen as any wider view of how the world actually works or what's gonna happen. There are no broader patterns inherent. There's no sense of time or lessons of history. We used to talk a lot about lessons of history. Crane Britain used to talk about, you know, lessons of revolution. You know, when do they arise? And what are the rules? And, you know, what can we say? But you look at the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, you look at all these revolutions around the world. We know, historians never do anything like that anymore. Um, it's purely a study of some some social behavior, maybe deviant social behavior, and, you know, late 18th century Limoges or something. <laughs> and that's it. And by the way, I'll be offering uh, undergraduate seminars. That, that'll, be the, that'll be what every undergraduate thinks history is really about, right? And that'll be it. And, and that's what history has become, and it's really kind of tragic. I think um, uh, the complete divide between what most Americans think of as popular history, you know, when they want to read something that really interests them, maybe um, uh, John Adams or, or, or Ulysses Grant or the Civil War, they increasingly turn to historians who aren't necessarily affiliated with academia anymore. And that, that's kind of a tragedy, right? Um, uh, and and this, this study of politics um, in particular, has completely gone out of disfavor. I think that's probably the boomer influence. You know, the boomers don't like politics. Everything is cultural, right? Uh, the study of war, interestingly, has almost completely disappeared in American academia. I mean, other than a few people, maybe at West Point or or uh, or, or at the Naval Academy, uh, almost no one teaches that. It's amazing that this particular these this particular social activity which reorients empires and completely changes how history goes and which way it's gonna turn, has almost no interest anymore in academia. Why is that? And interestingly enough, if you offer a course like that, when and if it's offered on college campus today, a millennials will absolutely flock to it. They say, well, that sounds fascinating, <laughs> yeah. but no one offers it, right? So to me, that's, that's too bad. Um, and I do think that it's, it's, that itself is actually generationally driven, you know, what, what we like and what we don't like. And, and by the way, one of the tragic effects, one of the unfortunate effects for me is, I mean, I, I love the humanities. I love, uh, the liberal arts, uh, and I'm, I'm a very much a, um, uh, 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 interdisciplinary thinker. I think if you read my book, you'll, you'll see that. I mean, I love to talk about culture. I like foreign policy. I talk about religion. I spend a lot of time talking about religion, JG. I talk about all these things, and I talk about war, and I talk about, right? I talk about gender roles. I talk about all this stuff. And, and I love I love thinking in, a dis, in an inter, interdisciplinary fashion. Um, and it pains me to see the liberal arts and the humanities so degraded today at college in the sense that millennials absolutely are repelled by them. You look at majors across all of the elite universities in America, we have seen huge declines in the numbers of young people wanting to pursue a history degree, an arts degree, you know, in other words, anything in the liberal arts. Now, partly you could say, well, these things don't pay, 
you know, and college costs a lot. And I understand that. But I also think it's because older generations of academics have made the field uh, so unpleasant and so uninteresting. Because I, I actually, I completely agree. I, all the bigger questions that make it interesting. What was that last part? I'm sorry, I didn't so mean they, to. They drain their field of all the bigger questions that make it interesting. Like, where is, where are we going? And what does make sense for our future? You know, all of that is, is not interesting to them. I just had two more questions. I know we're running up against the hour, but um, I was curious, uh, I, you know, I noticed that Arthur Schlesinger, uh, gets mentioned in the book a few times early on. Um, maybe you could talk about uh, figures like Schlesinger and the influence they've had on your work. Well, look, I mean, this is part of an older generation of historians. I mean, uh, uh, Schlesinger and his and his father, you know, Schlesinger, you know, junior and senior. Schlesinger wrote a rather uh, famous book uh, called, you know, Cycles of American History. Uh, and he talked about these cycles being, in a sense, he said that the, the mainspring of the cycle of American history, which he saw between, you know, activism and, you know, sort of active and passive, you know, modes of politics. And I, I talk about that. I talk about how our, our, our rhythm of history is, is consistent with his, largely. But he talked about that as being the mainspring of it being generationally driven. He said that's the only thing that he could explain it, um, and and I agree with him. And again, this is an example of these earlier generations of historians thinking broadly, thinking in 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 large terms about what actually determines the main flow of history. Flow isn't history is not just a million little fragments all happening on their own, right? It's not like um, some enormous jigsaw puzzle, which you know, this is very much a postmodern idea, by the way. <laughs> and it very much fits in with sort of, you know, kind of critical studies. You know, you can look at an individual piece and it reflects something about our largest society, but it's not like a piece that all fits together and tells us where we collectively are going. There is no such thing as we collectively, right? In this new way of looking at the world. It, it's I, almost I, like we've become atomized <laughs> in a way. Well, I think it's very much that that's that is a vision, right? Uh, and that we 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 may feel some sort of group affinity with certain groups within us, or we impose that these groups affinity, and we 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 talk about the justice of this and the justice of that, but we don't see where we're going. We feel no connection with the past. We make no opinion of the future, but we we talk about our own attitudes and appetites and 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 um and judgments on on politics of the culture through the example of these little historical fragments we look at and beyond that history has no meaning right and that's a tragedy to me and i think that people who do read the book will see a much more integrative look at history and something that is really important for us, and part of the, what I talk about the fourth turning when I talk about this epidemic of loneliness, is not only to reveal loneliness sort of spatially, you know, we, we no longer know what national community we belong to, we no longer know, you know, who our neighbors are today, but we also feel loneliness with regard to time. We, we, we no longer feel that we have any affinity with our parents' world, and we wonder, we fear that we will have no affinity with our kids' world. It's almost like we don't have a connection to any type of cultural memory anymore. Exactly. And if there's one thing that you get from my book, JJ, and I'm sure you'll see, is that I think these things echo and they come back and we can look at the past and see what kinds of things can happen. And, and they give us a greater sense of direction. So the very last thing I want to ask, I promise to let you go after this, is... Um, you know, since we are in this winter, as you put it in the book, what should we prepare for? Uh, you know, how do we see our way through the sort of coming traumas? I have a, an epilogue which addresses that, uh, you know, and it's an epilogue. I talk about everything from Navajo sand painting to the Bhagavad Gita. And I talk about how important it is for people to um 
uh, understand to be to understand their role in history, both collectively as a member of the generation and individually, and do what they can to help. Um, although the overall direction of history tends to be determined by larger forces of which people participate, particularly as generations. Um, whether or not these crises turn out well or badly is up to us, right? Uh, and you can look at a lot of fourth turnings in history, not just in America, but even more around the world where these, these things have turned out very badly. <laughs> there is no dispensation that it turns out well. Nor is there that, you know, providentially we're, we're fated it turned out uh, badly either. It's up to us. But to realize that these things recur and that we are part of a bigger picture and that our awareness of being able to live up to our role when it's called upon to make sure it turns out well requires us to have a bigger view of what our society is and where our history has come and where it's likely to be going. Uh, that's what I try to do. And I, I even try to spell out a vision, <clears throat> different visions of what, what the early 21st century could look like. I don't know if you saw it, uh, JG, but you know, all the way past the year 2050, what's a, what's a great view of what it could look like? What's a, what's a less good view of what it could look like? But that's all up to us. But it will depend upon our being aware that we are part of something, right? We are, we are part of broader forces. And people often think, well, if you think of history as determined, we're powerless. To the contrary, when you think of broader forces determining where we are, it empowers us because it means that it's not just utterly random what happens 10 years from now. It's up to us to make sure that these critical phases that we're in, these critical seasons we're in, turn out well. I think that's a great note to end on. And I really do hope people read uh, The Fourth Turning is here. I'm going to have to do a second read through because my first, there's so much packed in there that I feel like it's, you know, in one reading, there's a lot to take in. I feel like you, you could do two or three readings of this book and still there's get a, new things out of it. There's, there's, there's a quite a bit there. I think I think there's a quite a bit there. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Neil Howe. And uh, how can my listeners uh, get the book? It's coming out in a few weeks here. And how can they keep up with your work? You're on Twitter and all the social media platforms. Yeah, I was at uh, uh, Howe Generation, you know, at Howe Generation's Twitter handle. Uh, I think when the book comes out, there'll be a, you know, fourthturning.com uh, site. And we're doing a, um, uh, you know, a Substack, uh, you know, <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing a Substack offering called uh, uh, Demography Unplugged. Uh, so that's what I do at Hedge. I am a demographer, so we do cover you know demographic trends both in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, and but mainly the the book itself, uh, uh, July eighteenth, uh, and it's available um, Kindle, hardcover, audio. And by the way, I do the audio, so it is my audio. I, I got to ask, too, because I had a listener that was wondering, are you half glass empty or half glass full when it comes to the future? Oh, definitely half glass full. I, I'm I'm tremendously uh, bullish on on this country, on America and uh, where we're going. I, I think it's um, and, and I that's why I find I, I find the people who are most pessimistic about the future are people who have no grasp of history. And I realize that that sounds a little counterintuitive, but it's not. I think when you realize how much we've gone through, much of it's so horrible, right? And and and, and the per perceived future, you know, what, what was the perceived future like in 1933 or 1934? And, and what we've done with that, it makes me much more hopeful. Um, so I, I think- Well, yeah, I, because we've survived it, you know, as a exactly. community, as a people, we, yeah. Allows you what powers can be unleashed by these seasons, right? And and that's what that's awesome to realize. But to know it, you need to look back in history to see it. Well, thank you again, Neil Howe, for coming on Parallax Views. Great, Don. Thanks for having me, JJ. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Neil Howe, and you'll check out his book, The Fourth Turning Is Here. What the seasons of history tell us about how and when this crisis will end. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I'm hoping to get a few more subscribers this coming month, so if you can pitch in even a dollar, five dollars, anything like that, it would really help me out. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.